Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people into authentic and significant relationship with King Jesus. Good morning. Woo, Jesus is in the house. I am grateful because if he's not, I don't want to be. Yeah? Okay, so here's what I need you to do today. I need you to reach out your hand to me. You're going to pray for me. Say, Lord Jesus. I pray for Michael. Would you help him communicate your word? In the Old Testament, you spoke through a donkey. Surely you can speak through him. Now, take your hand and put it on your ear. Lord Jesus, I pray, you, I pray you'd give me ears. Amen. All right. If you haven't read that passage in the Old Testament, come on, clap away. Look it up, fact check me, God spoke through a donkey. It's good news for me. Okay, so uh, we are in Acts chapter 4 today. We are actually going to open up. I've got a cough, you'll have to forgive me. Good morning also to everyone online. Just want to say welcome, whether you're live right now on Facebook or YouTube, or whether you're listening in arrears or even on our podcast, I just want to say welcome and good morning. We are also glad that you are part of our growing community. Um, So I am in Acts chapter 4. I have the tendency to get excited because I believe the Word of God. If you've never been here, then just, you know, buckle your seatbelt, have fun. Um, We dig in the Word. If you don't have a Bible, you can get either an NIV study Bible out there. We give them away for free. Or you can get a one-year Bible. I'd recommend getting one of each. Um, There's also a great kid's Bible. So get one of all three. Take them home. Um, But I'm a big fan of paper Bibles. I circle and highlight. I put dates and cross-reference scriptures. And if God speaks to me, I make a little note. Um, so it just it becomes like a, jour- a journal of my spiritual journey. Yeah? So if you have a Bible, open it up. Get out your pen, your highlighter, whatever you want. Um, I use little pink sticky notes too. Check that out, man. Um, and, and if you don't have a Bible, then open your smartphone and uh, scroll along with us. So we are in Acts 4. We're going to start reading in verse 23. And what's really interesting is in this passage, the Apostle Peter is going to cross-reference Psalms 2. Okay? So we're going to look at both. Are we ready? All right. Um, Let's set the table. If you haven't uh, been with us last week or the week prior, let me just kind of bring you up to speed on Acts 4. Um, 23. What in the world's happening? So Jesus was crucified um, and about 65 or 70 days ago when this was written. Make sense? So, so this is written about a point in time where Jesus was, was killed and then resurrected like le- just a little over two months prior. Um, and then if you're, if you're new here, if you've never been here, if you've never heard us preach or talk or whatever, I want to also point out something. All of um, Rome, at least uh, Rome that is uh, occupying Palestine in this day and age, in addition to um, King Herod, um, in addition to all the Pharisees and Sadducees who are like the religious leaders of the day, all three of those groups want to destroy this this blossoming, um, beckoning move of the Spirit called Christianity. It's not even called Christianity yet, but that's what it is, okay? So... All they had to do at any point in time is produce the body of Jesus. And what would have happened to this movement? They were 500 yards from the hill on which Jesus was killed. 
right outside the city walls. They were 500 yards from probably where Jesus' body was laid in this little garden tomb. And all they would have had to do is uh, produce the body of Jesus and all of this that is happening, all that's even happening in us today, would have come to a grinding halt because it's all built on Jesus being the incarnate, which means he put human skin on, so he's still fully God, but he's fully fully man. He he walks and lives on planet Earth. He dies the death we couldn't, couldn't die as a penalty for our sin. And then he's resurrected from the grave, breaking the bounds of death and hell and separation with God and offering us opportunity to come and exchange our brokenness for the life of Christ in us and through us. Whew, that was a mouthful. Okay, all they would have had to do to stop all that was just produce the body of Jesus. Did they? All right, somebody say, Jesus is real. Then Jesus is alive. Okay. Acts 4.23, in my opinion, this is one of the great, it's not just my opinion actually, all scholars would agree, this is one of the great prayers recorded in the Bible. So today's message, I titled it, How Do I Pray Living in the Laughter of God? How do I pray living in the laughter of God? Okay, that's what's titled, so we're going to unfold that. Let's just start reading. Um... And let's see where we go from here. So Acts 4, verse 23. Now, Peter and John have just been imprisoned. Um, again, the, the short recap is uh, they went to the temple because they're meeting. All the Christians, there's about some 5,000 of them now, are meeting in Solomon's Colonnade, which is an area in the temple. They're meeting in a public gathering place. It wouldn't be like us. It would not be unlike us actually meeting on like the courthouse steps or like on this public place on Market Street or Oleander. So like we're like a fishbowl. You know, they're a fishbowl. Everybody can see what's happening. Everybody can hear them. People can stand at a distance and listen. People can watch and point and laugh and do all the stuff. So, um, but Peter and John healed a guy. He was, um, he, he was paralyzed from birth from the waist down. And uh, Peter actually heals him. And this guy makes a huge kerfuffle scene in the temple. He's dancing and yelling. His ankles work and his knees work. And because he's dancing around so gregariously, everyone gathers around this huge crowd. Peter starts preaching. 2,000 people get saved. And all the religious people get angry. And they want to kill Peter and John. So Peter and John go to prison. Now, emotionally, as Peter and John go to prison, as we pick up in verse 23, what are Peter and John most likely thinking? I'm going to die because who just died? Jesus. So most of them, even the believers who aren't in prison, they're now whispering like we like to do in church, right? Something happens and they're like, did you hear that Peter and John are in prison? Did you hear? And so everybody's scared. And I would be willing to bet, I can't prove it scripturally, but I'd be willing to bet that at that moment there was some people who decided to back away from this thing called Christianity. Because it's dangerous, Right? So emotionally, there's fear. Emotionally, there's anxiety. Emotionally, there's defensiveness. I bet people are carrying their little, their little clubs or their little swords. People are locking their doors and pulling their blinds. There is some fear that is happening in the people of God at this moment. All right, so let's pick it up. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. On their release, their release from what? Prison. Okay. Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Okay. This is not unlike Michael, uh, uh, you know me, Pastor Michael, having spent last night in prison. 
And I come in this morning from prison, and you all are all going, what happened? So we throw out like business as usual, you know, three songs and a sermon or eight songs or whatever we do. We throw it all out, and we're just going to get up here and share. And what's amazing also is that you got to think of Peter and John as um, people who were previously in competition. I'm not going to take you there, but if you want to make a note, make a note of Matthew 20, Luke 9, and Luke 22. Matthew 20, Luke 9, Luke 22. Peter and John are in fierce competition over who is the greatest. Oh, but this is now post-Pentecost. This is post-Peter's humiliation, Peter's sin, Peter's denial of Jesus, not once, twice, but three times. Peter having been restored, John also having been humbled by God. So here they are. They're no longer in competition, which is amazing, and they've come in to all of their people. Verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. All right, so what did they hear? Let's go back. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, the chief priests and elders are the great Sanhedrin. That's like the Israeli um, or the Jewish um, Supreme Court. So verse 24, when they heard this, what? The report, okay. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. So who raised their voices? 5,000-ish? I don't know. But they raised their voices. We don't do this in America very much. Like if I, in fact, if we, took, if we paused a minute and I said, would you guys pray with me? So let's actually, let's try it. Let's try it. Um, I, here's what I want you to do. I want you just to say, um, say some version of God praise you or God I love you or Jesus I worship you. Um, so just, just say something out loud to God. If you feel uncomfortable doing this, feel free to keep your, your mouth shut and be silent. That's no problem. No condemnation. But ready? I just want you to say something. God, I thank you. Jesus, I praise you. Let's just, let's just try. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, that's not bad. That's not bad. So, but, but I want you to get something. I want you to feel that we don't know how many thousands of people are gathered here, but it says that they raised their voices together. And I, I've got a dear friend um, named Genny who's Albanian, and, and Genny actually educated me on, on hot cultures and cold cultures. And he would say that um, all the cultures in the Middle East are hot cultures, which means they're not afraid of getting really loud. And here in America, we're a little prim and proper, and we like to keep things kind of buttoned up, and we're a cold culture. So what's happening here is you've got to understand, this is a group of Palestinian Jews who have been resurrected, saved by grace. They've probably spent the weekend afraid that they're going to die, and all of a sudden, Peter and John roll miraculously out of prison, back into their church gathering, and the people go... I mean, there's this like huge roar of we are raising our voices to God. There's not this prim and proper American thing that we're afraid we're going to hurt somebody's feelings or offend somebody or ruffle somebody's hair or whatever it is. No, 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 no. These are a group of people who literally faith to them at this moment is life and death. And so the, the, the fervor that is like burning within these people, they raise their voices together. I would have loved to have stood there. In fact, I, this is totally unbiblical and not theologically accurate, but I hope that when I get to heaven that there are things I can say, Lord Jesus, can I see that? 
And this is one of those things that I would love to walk in and I would love to watch Peter and John walk in uh, where they were formerly arrogant, where they were formerly in competition, where they were formerly at each other's throats for who's going to be the greatest. And all of a sudden now they're unified and they've been humbled and now there's over 5,000 believers and the body of Christ is brimming and spewing and, and scattering and it's happening. And all of a sudden they come in and they share how they were delivered and what happened. And then the 5,000-ish raise their voices together in this holy roar. I can't imagine actually standing in the temple that day and the people of God letting out this roar of exultation and praise and glory and triumph and oh, that we might be like King David in the Old Testament at some point and become even more undignified than this. But I hope I can go back or stand or he can press play on the like recorded history of time and I can stand there and see this happen. Now, after worship, what did we say together? Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer begins with, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. All right, now let's read what their prayer starts with. Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord. Does this sound familiar? Our Father who is in heaven, Holy is your name. So they raise their voices and they say, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, uh, our, or you spoke through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So the first thing that I, that I want you to get here is we are looking at how the believers pray. So there's probably some things that we can learn, some notes we can take, some things that maybe even were meant uh, to mimic, and then there's also some things that we can just look at. And I see this similar pattern between the Lord's Prayer and between this. It starts with, O sovereign God, creator of the heavens, Lord of heaven and earth, God of the angel armies, that one who stood at the beginning of time, the middle of time, the end of time, the one who is outside all of our troubles and hardships. And there's this magnificent re-centering of our focus from our own problems and our own self-interest and our own selfish desires and our pride and our ego and our lust and our all this stuff. And all of a sudden, the people of God of one heart and one mind shift their focus onto the sovereign creator God and the roar erupts from the 5,000 and they say, oh, sovereign God. It's like, wow. And then we come to church and we're quiet. (laughs) You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Now, Peter... Uh, talking here, or Luke recording here. Uh, Luke would have written this. Um, Dr. Luke, Gentile, um, non-Jewish guy, would have written this. Um, And they are quoting Psalms 2. So if you want to flip with me to Psalms 2, I want to read that in context. Psalms is in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Job. If you're scrolling, it's really easy to find. If you're flipping, maybe you have some trouble. I'm sorry. Psalms 2, I'm just going to read the first uh, four verses. Um, They actually, Dr. Luke here in his writing only quotes two. But Psalms 2 says, Why do the nations conspire 
Now, if you want to make a note, I'm not going to fully cross-reference this, but if you want to make a note, um, this psalm was most likely written by King David uh, during the time of events or span of time that happened in 2 Samuel chapters 5 through 8, if you want to take a note. That's probably, uh, if we fully had to like get into this and understand it, um, you would have to get into the mind and heart of King David as he's being crowned king after like maybe up to two decades hiding in the caves, running from King Saul. So he's being crowned king, Second Samuel 5 through 8, and he writes, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. Do we still have kings of the earth? Oh, yeah. Do they go by different names? Yeah. And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You could translate that, the Messiah, the Son of Man. There's several ways you could translate it. I'm in the NIV, and it says, against his anointed, saying, verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, verse 4, this is very interesting. The one enthroned in heaven. Who's that? God. And John 1 tells us that Jesus, and even if you read Genesis 1, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are present at the beginning. So the one enthroned in heaven, God the Father, what's it say he does? Laughs. So Peter and John are getting out of prison. Everybody's scared. This huge roar has just erupted because they're all so excited that God is real and he's shown up yet again. And they're quoting now this Psalms 2 where David was just crowned king. Now, who would have just been crowned king back in Acts 4? Well, technically speaking, I'm going to be technical on you. The one who was crowned king was actually Jesus when he ascended back to heaven. That was the coronation or the crowning of King Jesus. So that has just happened. Um, So the one enthroned in heaven, say it again, laughs. Okay. The Lord scoffs at them. Who is he scoffing at? The rulers, the kings, the nations, everyone who raises their hand against the kingship of Christ. Okay, the Lord scoffs at them. And then verse 6 or verse 5, he rebukes them in his anger. The whole whole chapter uh, there is amazing. Take note of it if you'd like. All right, back to Acts 4. Acts 4.25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So who has just raged? Did King Herod rage when he got Jesus crucified? Yeah. Did King Herod rage when he had John the Baptist beheaded? Yeah. Yeah. Did the great Sanhedrin rage when they were instrumental in the death and the sentencing of Jesus? Yeah. Did Rome rage when it crucified the king? Yeah. Did Pontius Pilate rage? Okay, so that's what's being said here. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So I want you to see they're taking their fear... And in some ways, they're supernaturally allowing God to transform their fear into faith. Okay? I don't think they're denying their fear. They're actually saying in this huge roar that's happening, 
Why do the nations rage? They're still raging. They're still afraid at some level that the great Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, Rome, whoever it is, is going to come and get them. But in that, they're now saying, but the peoples, the people who rage, plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers, the great Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Rome, band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Okay, translation there, that could be translated Christ. A lot of times I I like to refer to Jesus as King Jesus because Christ um, in this day and age would better be translated Christ or Messiah or King or Sovereign One or Son of Man or Anointed One. But sometimes those don't like translate fully in our English language. So, you know, King Jesus, it's like a title, Christ Jesus, King Jesus. But it it could be translated, any of those things. Verse 27, indeed, who? Herod and... Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, okay, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. Now remember, 65, 70 days ago, Jesus was killed. Uh, Whom you anointed. Who was Jesus anointed by? God the Father. Okay, verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. I love this verse. Like, I love this verse. Let's read it again. All right. They did what your power, whose power? God's power and will. Whose will? God's will had decided beforehand should happen. Did Herod act outside of God's power and will? Did Herod? Pontius Pilate acts act outside of God's power and will. Did the great Sanhedrin? Did Rome? So park this into the tragedy that has just happened, and you better believe Jesus just died 65 days ago. Are there people in their midst who still are like scratching their heads, mourning, grieving? Even now, God appeared, to, Jesus appeared when he resurrected to 500 different people. And then he ascended into heaven in the, in the presence of those, some of those 500 people. And yet, is it even possible that some guys like Peter and John are actually missing that they're no longer walking literally or, or physically with Jesus? Yes. So there's even could be some deep like sadness in their hearts that they, their, their relationship with the God of the universe is transitioning. Change is difficult, isn't it? Okay. So... They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. All right, let me make some comments on prayer. Excuse me, and we'll go back to reading. Um, in his word, God speaks to us and tells us what he wants to do, both um, the, the, the direct words of the, the Bible and even the word that he speaks to our hearts. So in the word, he, he speaks and tells us what he wants us to do. <clears throat> in prayer, we speak to God Almighty and make ourselves available to accomplish his will. Does that make sense? I, I mean, if you put it in like, I was trying to think, how, how do I put this in like current American terms? Have you ever seen a check with two signature lines? That's the way I think about prayer. Like God's issued a check and he signed it. But then he's going to hand it to you and say, sign it, partner with me. If we don't partner with him, does the check, can the check be cashed? We're getting in now to the the sovereignty of God. But I would say in our lives, uh, if 
at this moment, when Peter and John are walking back, could Peter and John have bailed out and decided they didn't want to follow Jesus anymore? Yes! They could have run away. They could have been afraid. So you get this idea that God has spoken, told us what he wanted. he's, He's written a check. He's signed it. And now he's asked for our signature. Okay. True prayer is not telling God what to do, which I think a lot of us in American Christianity do. Um, but rather, it's asking God to do his will in us and through us. See that little shift? Uh, True prayer means getting God's will done on earth, not Michael's will accomplished in heaven. You hear me? And and a lot of times we approach, and I'm doing this out of my own brokenness of heart because I've done the same thing. I'm more bent on praying Michael's will and way than asking that God's will would be accomplished in and through Michael on earth. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on as it is in. So we become like participants with him as sons, as daughters, as heirs of the promises of every blessing in Christ Jesus. Participants with him in pulling the kingdom reality from eternity into our present reality. That's what our day-to-day, moment-by-moment, step-by-step journey with Jesus is all about. Make sense? Somebody said about prayer, and I I quote it, um, I don't pray very long, but I don't go very long without praying. I love that. I don't pray very long, but I don't go very long without praying. Okay, so... Let's go back to this verse 27 and 28. We're kind of parked here for just a minute. Um, so before we continue, though, let's just talk about a few things. The resurrection is fresh on everybody's mind. Um, the believers, Peter and John, are now unified. They're not in competition with one another, hating on each other, trying to vie for who's going to be the most important. Um, so they are in unity, and they lead the believers to pray in unity. I don't know how many churches could pray in unity. I mean, that's a real powerful thing. But they pray in unity. They pray in supernatural unity. I think the other thing that I want you to see is the believers are actively rejecting fear and choosing faith. I mean, would it have been tempting at this moment to say Jesus has abandoned us, he's left us, he's gone back to heaven, and therefore I'm leaving him? Could that have been a temptation? You better believe it. So they reject fear, they choose faith. I think many of them could have abandoned the faith. Um, I think if you want to do a cross-reference here, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, you don't have to flip there, but you could make a note. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. Do the people of God at this juncture, because of the life and death nature of their faith, have to take their fear captive? Might some of you today have to take your fear captive? You can do that by the power of the cross. Okay, verse 27 and 28. I want to sit here for just a minute. 
Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this very city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, King Messiah. Verse 28, they did, what your, by, uh, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, would, do you think when the believers are gathering on this moment that it might have been a temptation to pray against Pilate? Could it have been a temptation to pray against Rome? Could it have been a temptation to pray against the great Sanhedrin? Could it have been a temptation to pray against Herod? And yet, what did they do? They actually, they upgraded their fear, um, their potential hatred, their anger, their bitterness about what has happened, even their confusion. But they upgraded it, and they actually begin to bless. Let's read, read verse 29. Uh, verse 29 says, Now, Lord, consider their threats. Whose threats? Pilate, Herod, great Sanhedrin, and enable your servants. Who are your servants? The 5,000 commoners that are gathered to speak your word with great boldness. Did they pray against Herod? No. Did they pray against Pilate? No. Did they pray against the Sanhedrin? Did they, did they pray against Rome? No, no, no. Not only did they not pray against them, they actually prayed for boldness. Okay, hang on. There's something here. So Jesus actually says in Matthew 5, 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ephesians 6, 12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, this is the Apostle Paul writing, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Could they have made people their enemy, and could they have spent this laborious time praying fire down on? In fact, I think they even uh, could have quoted, let's see if I have it here, 2 Kings 1, verses 10 and 11, where Elisha, an Old Testament prophet, actually called down fire on a group of people. What if they would have gotten into that mindset, us against them? And, there were, and what if they would have actually gone into this prayer, not for the greatness of God or the glory of God or to pray for their own power and boldness, but to pray against? And what if right here they would have tried to call down fire on the people in Jerusalem? Could they have done that? I want you to get that and sit in it because there is a crossroads every time we open our mouth to pray and there is nothing I can find anywhere where we are called to pray against people. Our, our battle is not against people. And if you're making your battle against a human, you're wrong. Join with me in repenting. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you help me see that my battle is not against flesh and blood? And then you pray for your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. You bless them. So that's what they're doing here. Um, I can't even imagine at this point in history. It's like I feel like I'm almost failing to communicate this. But it's like... At this point, when, when Christianity is in this infant, like gentle, um, uh, vulnerable state, they could have prayed for blessing. They could have prayed for new houses. They could have prayed for physical healing. They could have prayed for 
uh, health and wealth and prosperity. They could have prayed that Herod would be torn down and Pontius Pilate and all the rest of them. But instead, they pray for boldness and power. Okay, so we got to take note of something, church. I'm not saying it's wrong. Sorry. Um, I'm not saying it's wrong when we go to God and, and pray that he would change our circumstances. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that. But, but I want you to see what they are first and foremost most concerned about is the boldness of God would move through them, that the kingdom of heaven would move in and through them, that they would declare the word of God boldly and with power. Like that is what they are most concerned about, not that he would shift or change their circumstances. So in that sense, they're stepping into partnership with Jesus, a kingdom partnership. Uh, Go back to the Lord's Prayer. They're stepping into it, contending with him that his will and way would be done on earth. And in so doing, they may be actually laying down their preferences, their ideas, um, their scenarios of what should happen in their life or in their marriages or in their kids or with their health or whatever it is. They're laying it all down, and they're now going to contend for boldness and courage and power to face the day. Whoa. Somebody said, do not ask for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your power. Pray for power equal to your task. In verse 27 and verse 28, they say so clearly that they're parked in the sovereignty of God. So a couple just quick thoughts here that I see. The question of ownership in this New Testament church is settled. Who owns the church? I get that. Who owns the church? Who owns their lives? Who owns their homes? Who owns their stuff? Who owns their kids? Like they have settled with finality the question of ownership and then they have settled God's right to rule. In other words, they might not understand it. They might not like it. They may not get it, but they are going to step unto and before God and raise their voices in one accord with and praise the sovereign creator God. They're going to worship him with everything uh, they have. So I would like even, I've even contended in my own heart this week to go, Father, why is it that it feels in some ways like we don't see um, powerful prayers being answered? That's humbling to even say that as a pastor right now in 2023. And if I said anything back to that, I think I would say, the name of Jesus has not lost its power, but many of us as God's people have lost our power because we are not praying to the sovereign God of the universe in the name of Jesus for his will and way. We're busy praying for whose will and way? Sometimes mine. I'm guilty of that. We're all guilty of that. We step up to the plate to pray before God and we're going to go through our laundry list of things that we want done. And I think there's this exchange where you've got to go, okay, I'm going to park my list to the side. Go back to the Lord's Prayer. Start with worship. Start with adoration. Start with exalting His name. Start with acknowledging that He's King and Lord and Creator and God. And then bow your knee and bow your heart and bow your life to Him and begin to ask that His will and way would be done in and through you, in your family, in your marriage, with your kids, with your finances, with your house, in your neighborhood, in all the people you interact with in this city at Roland Grice, in New Hanover County, on the Eastern Seaboard. And what would 
would happen if a group of people actually began to take our needs and wants and desires and our little pet things and our agendas and our mess and we parked it all off to the side and what if we said, no, 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 Lord, not my will and way, but your kingdom come and your will be done in and through our lives in the here and now. What might happen to a church in a city on the east coast of America if they actually all began to go, Lord Jesus, would you rule and reign in us and through us? There is something powerful. And then all of a sudden, my preferences and what I want to fuss about and complain about, all the stuff, right? I got it just like you. All it is just swept aside. It melts like wax in the presence of the Lord. Father, would you come and build your church, not just this church, but the big church from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, from our southern boundary to our northern boundary. And then would you do it on all the nations of the world and would you prepare the church to be stewards of your person and presence. And God, would you make us a group that is hungry again. Amen. I think I'd say to you that nothing is outside the power of prayer except that which is beyond the will of God. Take it for what it is. All right, let's look at verse 28. Let's make it um, ours for a second, and then, then we'll continue on. Um, let's actually finish reading, and then I'll go back and deal with verse 28. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Verse 30, Stretch out your hand. Whose hand? God's hand. Through who? Yeah, go keep going. Through who? Us. Say me. 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 That's right. Stretch out your hand, the hand of God, through me, through you, through us, to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's their prayer. I'd like to see more of those. I'm not giving license to shenanigans or weirdness, but I am saying, God, I want to see more of your mighty hand and your presence in the church. That's what they prayed for. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was what? Shaken by the power and person of Jesus. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. This is a sub-point on this whole message. This is not another Pentecost, but it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? This is a re-infilling. I would say to you, theologically, Michael has been saved, Michael is being saved, and Michael will be saved. Michael has been filled with the Spirit, Michael is being filled with the Spirit, and Michael will be filled with the Spirit. It is an active, ongoing infilling, because guess what? Michael's heart is broken, and it just leaks. So you go, Lord Jesus, would you fill me again? Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want to park in this verse 28 for just a second, and then we're going to throw back to Psalms 2. Where ha- what did God do to his enemies? Someone remind me. What? He, did, he blessed them, but, but verse 4 of Psalms 2, who remembers? The one enthroned in heaven, he laughed. So I don't know that he is like fully mocking or being ugly, or, but he is saying, he is sitting back going, I am not concerned by your plans or your purposes or what you're trying to do because my sovereign rule and reign has been established and will continue to be established. Okay, so let's see if we can open this. Uh, 
they, verse 28, did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. If you have lost your job and you're facing financial ruin, is it outside God's will and power? If you have gotten a terrible diagnosis, is it outside of God's will and power? If you are in duress in your marriage, in your life, with a child, with a grandchild, you fill in the blank, a fight in your neighborhood, your neighbor's throwing things over the fence, whatever it is, it doesn't even matter. Is it outside his will and power? Like you can actually, and the answer is no to all of it. You could actually write this. My sister did something I always thought was funny. She would write on her mirror in lipstick. Like she would take lipstick and she'd write on her mirror. You could actually write this on your mirror. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, were Pontius Pilate and Herod outside the will of God? No. They function within the bookends of God's sovereignty. Is there anything in your life that is outside the bookends of God's sovereignty? you got to get this church because it will change everything. No. Now the question is, will you bow the knee to it and ask God how he wants to sovereignly bring his kingdom will and way in and through that difficult circumstance? Maybe he's going to heal it. Maybe he's going to transform it. Maybe he's going to raise it up. Maybe he's going to heal your marriage. Maybe he's going to give you a new job. Maybe he's called you to go plant a church somewhere and he had to get you fired in order to do it. You hear me? In other words, we put such like limits on what God is doing and we assume, like, in, in, if we were totally honest, the way most of us face the day and face life is like, oh God, don't let anything bad happen. I mean, you hear me? I mean, it's just true. Like, we're just waiting for another, like, shoe to fall in our life. Oh, don't, don't hurt me, God. Instead of waking up, like, I, I don't even know how to, like, put this or phrase this. I, I see it most clearly in my little five-year-old Amelia because I'm home uh, two days a week. I have two off days. It's Friday and Saturday. And my little Amelia at bedtime, she always goes, uh, Daddy, is tomorrow an off day? And, and five days a week, I say, no. And I leave early. I am up early, and the sun hasn't even gone. I am gone and out of the house, and she doesn't see me five mornings a week. But I'm home by 4 o'clock every afternoon, and we are riding big wheels and skateboards, and, like, and I get to put them to bed almost every night. But two days a week, I am there, Friday and Saturday morning. And at bedtime on Thursday night, and then on whatever it is, Friday night, she says, Daddy, is tomorrow an off day? And I go, she says, will you be downstairs or will you be up in your office? And I say, yeah. And in my office, I have this tiny little desk that she wakes up in the morning and she comes. And as soon as she's got these little, this little birdie alarm clock, Abby, my Abby is so cool, my wife. Uh, it's like there's this light that changes color on her little alarm clock and the birdies come on. And she knows she can get out of bed. Right? So when her birdies come on at like, I don't know, it's like 7.45 in the morning, she jumps up and she goes running through the house and she comes running into my office and she goes, Daddy. And she goes over and she pulls her little Bible out of the desk because guess what's on my desk? My Bible. And sometimes she sits on my lap and sometimes she'll sit at her desk next to me and she just begins to chatter and talk to me and she is so happy to face the day, absolutely fearless. She's a type 1 diabetic. She's got two sites on her bottom. 
that one is an insulin site, one is a continuous glucose monitoring site. She lives in a, a, a measure of pain every day with those sites. There's a, there's a little needle, it's about a half inch long, that's in her little bottom, and it is there. It causes pain all the time. It's always irritated. Her bottom looks like a little pincushion. If you saw it, I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm just trying to say she gets up in a little bit of pain and she faces the day because she knows she is my If I could like impart something to us, it is, can we write on our mirrors and lipstick, there is nothing you will face today. There's nothing you're going to face tomorrow. There's nothing you're going to face the next day that is outside of his power and will. And you and I, if we can know him at the depths of our being, can flicker our eyes open in the morning, and instead of being full of dread or full of fear or full of anxiety or full of defensiveness, we can begin to celebrate that we get to walk hand in hand with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and walk through, journey through another day, listening to his sweet voice, obeying him, surrendering our lives to him, letting the joy of the Lord be our strength, that we would wake up as people and journey from the reality that we're sons and daughters. We are free from our sin. He is moving us from places to greater wonderful blessing and mercy. And whatever is happening in your life at this moment, no matter how difficult or how bad, it is not beyond his power and will if you will surrender it to him and let him do what he wants to do in it and through it. Oh, that we as a church could flutter our eyes open in the morning, full of courage to go, Jesus, I get, not I have to, I get to walk with you through another day. And like my little one runs and jumps in my lap, that we would awaken to embrace the love of a father, the rulership of the Son, and the infilling of the Most Holy Spirit. Now, i got to flip this because I want you to hear something. This is really important. <clears throat> Remind yourselves, did the church pray against their enemies? Everybody say no. Now, let me just fast forward something because I want you to see two things. I can find one source that says this to be true about Pontius Pilate. I can't find a second source or a third source. All I can find is one. Therefore, in my opinion, it's probably a legend. Um, but it's an interesting legend, so I'm going to tell you, okay? Um, this one source has it that Pontius Pilate... Now, what did Pontius Pilate do? Killed who? Okay, the legend has it that Pontius Pilate retired from life in Jerusalem shortly after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and he retired to a little seaside village called Pompeii at the base of a mountain called Vesuvius. Some of you are connecting the dots already. Romans 12, 19, Pastor Daniel read it in our volunteer meeting this morning, and Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip and their day of disaster is near and doom rushes upon them. That is God's business. It is not yours and it is not mine. Whether that's true about Pontius Pilate or not, I don't know. It's an interesting thought. If you haven't caught up on that, Vesuvius exploded and overtook the entire city. It's actually a sad tragedy in history. But if Pontius Pilate was there, it's at least 
interesting and gives pause for us to think about. Okay, second thing I want you to know. Flip with me in the right in your Bible to Acts 12. Acts 12, I'm going to go through this quickly. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2, and then I'm going to read verses 21 to 24. Acts 12, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, um, but I'm going to read ahead. Verse 12, it was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, uh, that's like James ben Zebedee, if you were here last week, James the son of Zebedee, the brother of John the Beloved, who wrote the book of John, one of Jesus' twelve. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the, he killed one of the apostles, right there. Verse 3, now they had just prayed, go back to, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That is really hard to live in and under when your friend gets killed with the sword. Let's keep going. He saw this, uh, met with approval, Herod saw this, met with approval among the Jews, and he proceeded to seize Peter also. Okay, now go down to verse 21. Acts 12, verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, now this is Herod Agrippa I, I'll try to be really quick on this, but wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a mere mortal. Fear and trembling should go across all of our hearts at this moment. Verse 23, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Will God deal with his enemies? Is it going to be in your time? Is it going to be in your way? Is it going to be in the way you'd like? It'll probably be much more serious, drastic, and severe. Just, I mean, that's serious. But look at verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Now, let me just say this really quickly. There was, it, there's three Herods in the Bible. There's Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus at age two when he lived in Bethlehem. There's Herod Antipatus, who killed John the Baptist and who was instrumental in the death of King Jesus. Then there was, and Herod Antipatus is the son of Herod the Great. And then Herod uh, Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, this guy who just was struck down and killed. He killed um, James, um, son of Zebedee, brother of John. And then he was struck down by the angel. Can God deal with his enemies? If our enemies are not people. That's what we read in Ephesians. If our enemies are not people, then when we get a fired from a job, facing financial ruin, a health diagnosis that just seems like it's out to get us. We've lost a child. Someone in our family has died or crossed the, the finish line into heaven. When we get any manner of uh, bad, difficult, terrible news, does it change the reality that it's within the bookends of God's will and power? No. And then can we trust that God will deal with his enemies, both people and the things that we face with severity? Yes. But leave it to him. Leave it in his hands. Now, if you're facing something, they prayed in verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal, perform signs and wonders through the name of your servant Jesus. I'm in Acts 4 right there. Do I think we pray for healing? Absolutely. We did right here in our little pre-gathering. Do I think we pray for God's presence? Yes. But listen to me, church. God is victorious. He laughs at the things that intimidate us. 
He laughs at the things. He, he looks at the things that we spend so much time wringing our hands over, wondering about, worrying about, being full of anxiety and defensiveness. He looks at the difficulties and he sees them from the bookends of eternity. And he knows that he is actively accomplishing his will and his way. And he is working his pleasure, the unseen kingdom of God, into your heart and life if you'll let him. Like, it's amazing. He is not up there wringing his hands uh, in anxiety, fearing that something bad's going to happen. So hear me, church. Don't, don't trust or touch your enemies in prayer. Instead, like the early church, let's pray for transformation. Let's pray for courage. Let's pray for boldness. And let's pray for power in the Holy Spirit that he would show up in our midst. That's the prayer of the New Testament church. And I think we have an invitation to get into the kingdom, to get victorious, to live in the resurrected power of Jesus, even to laugh at the pain. I'm not saying I'm laughing at the pain of my little Amelia. I weep with her. We cry most times when we change her diabetic sites. I'm not saying that. Don't hear me. But I'm saying I can stand back with the creator God of the universe and know that what the enemy intends for evil in that little girl's life is either going to be supernaturally healed or God's going to use it for his glory and her good until the day that she is healed or goes to be with Jesus and is healed in eternity. And I can rest on the bedrock that that is. It is not outside of his will and way. It is not outside the bookends of his power and authority. And if we as a church will rise up and trust with him, and then if we as a church, no matter what you're facing, if we can begin to pray for boldness to, and, and then power, I am telling you the presence and purpose of God will come and set this place on fire. That's all I have today. Wayne and Nicole, are y'all back there? <clears throat> they may not be. Oh, there you are. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand and pray. So stand with me. If they come out, we'll do a closing song. If they don't, we'll end it right there. Father, I pray that in this house on this day that you would take some of our greatest enemies, the Herods of our life, the Pontius Pilots of our life, the diagnoses of our life, the fear of losing our kids or the loss of a loved one, the pain, financial pressures or insecurity, even being abused or hurt in our past or even in our present. And Lord, I pray that we would take all of those things, whatever we're facing and whatever we find ourselves in, and that we would move them into your presence, acknowledging that those things are not outside your your will and power. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, that those very things would melt like wax in the presence of the King. Father, would you be glorified here in this place, in our hearts. Prayer team, if you'll come up, have a few people available at the front. If you're in this room today or if you're online and you'd go, man, I've never, I've never given my life to a Jesus like this. I've never surrendered my life to him. I'd love to pray with you. There's no magic words. It's a surrendered heart posture that he comes in and lives his life in you and through you. I'll be right here. There's a few prayer team members. Let's close in a worship song and after the song, I'll close us out in prayer.
Father, we praise you for this day. Lord, I'm so glad that we get to journey with you. Father, would you give us hunger and expectation as your kids, that we get to walk with you and talk with you, that you'll convict us, protect us, shape us, form us. Father, would you increase our expectation on the goodness of your character, the kindness of your love, Father, in whatever we're living in or under today, we move it into your shadow so that it can melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. Father, we dedicate this time, our lives, our kids, our families to you. Father, would you move in us like you moved in the church in Acts 4. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. 
If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.